Good morning. Um, my name is, is Joe Mueller. Uh, I'm one of the, the pastors here. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to, to John chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be in verses uh, 60 through, through 71. Um, it's, my, it's my great joy and my, my great privilege uh, to, to, to speak from God's, God's word today. And we're going to be closing out the, the bread of life discourse, the, the, um, what we've been examining really, I don't know, for the past five weeks or so uh, in chapter six, where Jesus feeds a bunch of people, he walks on water, and then he talks about how he is the bread of life that, that feeds the world. And, and my aim as, as we go through this, we've, we've talked a lot about who Jesus is and, and who he says he is, and we've talked about the, the work of the, the Trinity um, in the work of Jesus and of uh, God's work in the world. But today I, I want us to consider what this text says about the church. Those saved by God to be gathered together to feast on his son. What does this text have to say about the church? And, and as we walk through the text, we'll see uh, that the church we can see with our eyes, the visible church, is a mixed congregation. It's mixed. Uh, we'll get here by, by briefly examining an interpretive aid from Scripture containing uh, stuff, insights, word pictures that will help us make sense of our passage today. And then we'll see three unique responses to Jesus and his teaching that can be found within the visible church. Uh, and we'll end with a reminder of some of the promises that Jesus makes and the truth he affirms to his people in, in John chapter 6. And so, uh, would you stand for the reading of God's holy, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, righteous altogether word. John six sixty through 71 reads this way. Uh, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples who were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you, want, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One. God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? This he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat and, and let's pray. Lord, you are uh, so good, and we come before you to receive from you your goodness. And so um, be at work in us today. Uh, do what only you can do 
we come to you humble and as beggars, uh, begging you to fill us with your spirit, begging you to redeem us and to make us like your, your son, Jesus. So Lord, be at work among us today. Use uh, your word to uh, grow us and implant in us and create us anew. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the, uh, the title of this sermon is The Sovereign Sower and His Invisible Church. Uh, I, I am not a sower, but I've been told a sower went out to sow. And this is not uh, sowing, S-E-W, it's S-O-W, someone who takes seeds and kind of throws them out into the world. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some, of, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky soil, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And, and since they had no root, they, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and, and the thorns grew up and, and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil, and Produce grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The, the sower in our story, I'm, a, a lot of people picked this up already. The sower in our story is none other than Jesus, right? Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and we are starting here because I think it, the parables of Matthew 13 give us the tools that we need to understand what is going on in our text in, in John 6. They are the word pictures that our Lord used to describe these historical realities that we are seeing in John 6 and, and that we continue to see even to this day. The way I understand it, Matthew 13 and John 6 are, are linked thematically and serve somewhat similar purposes in each of the, the two Gospels of, of Matthew and of, of John. They answer this fundamental question. How can it be that people, after appearing to follow Jesus, after coming to Jesus, after saying that they believe in Jesus, how can it be that people would leave him? How can people abandon Jesus? Why does it seem that saints slip through the sovereign's saving fingers? But... Uh, are these texts really connected to each other? Am I, am I making this up? Um, there are six, six ways. I'll, I'll try to run through them uh, relatively quickly. Six points of major connection between Matthew 13 and John 6, as well as a lot of smaller ones uh, that you can go and, and read and examine this week. Uh, but, but these six uh, give me a ton of confidence that we should be reading these texts together. Um, so Matthew, uh, I'll go through quickly. Uh, Matthew 12, much like John 5, starts with Jesus getting into a fight with the Pharisees over his activity on the Sabbath. Um, if you, Matthew 12, Jesus' disciples are walking to church on Saturday, the synagogue, and they're on the edge of a field, and they grab some grain, and they, they roll it together with fingers, and they eat it. And the Pharisees say they're harvesting on the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus gets into a, a fight with them um, about it. And if we remember back to, to John chapter 5, that's exactly what happens. Jesus heals a man by the pool of Bethesda 
on a, on a Saturday, on the Sabbath, and tells him to take up his mat and walk. And, and the Pharisees say, you're commanding, you're telling people to break the Sabbath, and, and you're not from God. Um, in, in both, right, the healing activity of Jesus on the Sabbath is, is prominent. Matthew 12 then takes us inside the synagogue where there's a man with a withered hand. And Jesus says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And they're silent. And so he heals the man with the withered hand, proving that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And, and John 5 deals, again, with the healing at the pool of, of Bethesda and the conflict it created with the Jews. Now, uh, the third way is that Jesus responds, or the Jews respond to Jesus in Matthew 12 and John 5 by seeking to kill him. That's the result of, of Jesus' healing activity on the Sabbath. They want to murder Jesus. Uh, Matthew 12, 14 says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. And in John 5, 18, it says, for this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The, the fourth connection is that Jesus responds to this death threat uh, this death rage of the Pharisees by going and healing more, right? Jesus will not be thwarted. He will accomplish his work. Matthew twelve fifteen through 16 says, Jesus, aware of this, that the Pharisees wanted to kill him, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Uh, John 6, 2 describes it this way. It says, and a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Our fifth connection between Matthew 12 and 13 and, and John 5 and 6 is that they both take place beside the sea. Uh, Matthew 13, 1 says that Jesus sat beside the sea, and John 6, 25 says they found him at the other side of the sea. And then the sixth and final connection here is that both Matthew 13 and our text today connect these previous events in the previous chapters uh, by narratives by a mention of time. So John 6, 22 uh, uses the phrase on the next day, and Matthew 13, 1 says the same day. So, so you have uh, these connections in, between one gospel and another, uh, and, and we will see uh, as we examine the actual content of both chapters and, and what they say that it's more than just these uh, kind of context connections. Also, the, the, the content of what Jesus teaches is the same. And so the parables of Matthew 13, they help explain what we're seeing in John 6. They help, they help interpret and help us understand what's going on. And this is what we're going to see. This is kind of the main point. The visible church... I, the, the disciples of, of Jesus, a, a church like ours, uh, is a mixed company consisting of both true and false believers. So the, the first way that we'll see this, this is our, our first point. Uh, the visible church is a mixed company consisting of both true and false believers. Uh, we see that by looking at the hard saying and the three soils, the hard saying and the three soils. So our, our text starts this way in, in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a hard saying is an interesting uh, turn of phrase, and a more literal translation is rendered, the word is hard. 
the word is hard. It's hard for me to accept this word. And, and the way that uh, translating as the word is, is hard is often the case with the Greek word uh, logos, uh, which is, is what is being used here by these disciples of Jesus. The word is hard. And if we read it this way, we can see uh, John is intending to communicate that it is not just the teaching of Jesus, but the, the person of Jesus himself that these disciples are having a hard time swallowing. John 1, 1 and 1, 14 say in the beginning was the word, the, the logos, and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And notice too, that the disciples say the word is hard. This is a hard saying, but Jesus has a completely different recollection of what he had just spoken to them. We, we see in, in uh, 663, Jesus say this about what he had just said in, in chapter six. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They're spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. The words that Jesus has spoken to the crowd are life. And yet some who hear the words of life don't believe. They, re they reject the words of life. They reject the spirit of the words that Jesus is talking, and, and this, this saying that some don't believe implies that some do, right? Some do believe the words of Jesus, and so somehow Jesus is able to deliver the same word to a bunch of different people, and it has different effects, has different effects in their life. The same word delivered, but, but different outcomes, and so if we, we step back and, and just imagine what Jesus is doing here. He's standing in front of a crowd in, in John 6. Jesus in the crowd. And Jesus has this, this thing that he's delivering of spirit and life contained in it. He's taking it and he's just broadcasting it out to the world, right? He's just taking it and he's tossing it to all who are there. He's, he's casting it out from himself. And this word is delivered to each and every person in the crowd. It hits them all sort of exactly where they're at. He's, he's casting it to them. It implants itself in them. And it, it, it is accepted, gives life to some, right? It, it, it finds its way into them and it, it grows within them. And others it lands on and maybe it bounces off or maybe it's just a shallow, uh, gets into them shallowly and it seems like they're following, but they end up not. They have the same word delivered, but different effects. And, and this is where Jesus' parable of the sower is helpful in making sense of why and how this can be so. How and why this can be so. So in, in Matthew 13, verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, um, then we can skip to verse 18, because I already read, read the, the story. Hear the, then the parable of the sower. When one hears the word, or the, the logos of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. That's our first soil. Our, our second soil 
in verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Our third soil is as for those, uh, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And our fourth soil from verse 23 says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, and in another 60, and in another 30. So we should, we should understand the many disciples who find the word difficult to swallow are among the first three soils. These many, from verse 60, have found Jesus. They followed him up to the point of, of even being called his disciple. Right? They're disciples of Jesus. They are visibly members of the church. They follow Christ. But when they are confronted with who Jesus is as the bread of life, they are unwilling to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They don't endure. They don't persist to maturity. They don't bear fruit. They are the ones snatched away, the ones fallen away, the ones proven unfruitful. They were part of God's visible church. They gathered to Jesus, but they were not truly members of Christ. For a time they gathered, but they did not abide in him, and he in them, because they rejected eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. And, and this leaves us with the, the forced soil, and this is our, our second point. This is the seed that remains that is understood, that abides in the vine, that bears much fruit. So Matthew 13, 23. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And our next point is, is this, the true disciple and the sower. That's what we're examining, the true disciple and the sower. So Upon seeing the many disciples who have turned away, Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter here epitomizes the response of the true disciple to the sower, the one who bears fruit and yields. And in his words, we see three ways true disciples respond to the bread of life. There are three ways that a true disciple responds. The first is that a true disciple agrees with the sower. So, so you, you see Peter in, in uh, verse, 16, or, uh, verse 68, right? He says, you have the words of eternal life. That is, that is basically a, a complete mirror of Jesus' claim when Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Peter is agreeing with Christ. Peter sees Christ as Christ claims himself to be. 
Peter has been paying attention to Jesus, and Peter is willing to swallow all that Jesus claims about himself. He is willing to eat the flesh and drink the blood of our Christ. All the truth that Jesus reveals about himself are the truths that the true believer assents to in his confession. We accept Jesus as he is, and we do not try to create Jesus after our own image. So that's the the first thing a true disciple does, is he agrees with the sower. The second is that a true disciple believes in the sower. This is more than mental assent to the truth that Jesus proclaims. But as a belief in personal, tr- this belief is a personal trust in the claims of Jesus. When he says, as he does in 640, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, you believe that he is speaking to you. That as you look upon the Son and believe, that you personally have this eternal life, that it is yours in Christ. And that he will surely raise you up on the last day. This is the, the belief that, that, that trusts that our sins are cleansed. It's, it's the one that confesses our sin because we know that in Christ we are saved. This is the, the belief that acts in obedience, uh, knowing that what Jesus says is true and that he will take care of us. The third way that the true disciple responds to the sower is that the true disciple knows the sower. There is is much to be said about knowing Jesus. But 1 John 4, 7 through 8 is a a very helpful summary. So 1 John 4, 7 through 8 reads like this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is the way the true disciple, the member of God's visible church, and those who truly rest in the palm of Jesus' hand, which none of us can see and is therefore said to be invisible. Right. So the true disciple, though, he gathers with us. The true, his, his, um, his resting in Jesus' hand is, is hidden from us. We don't see it. It's, it's impossible for us to see, but it is still true, um, but it is hidden from us. It was, as soon as anyone creates a list like this, right, I listed off three things. Um, some of us will see that as a checklist, and we may approach the list this way. We may say, Do I do these things enough? Do I do it enough? Are my deficiencies in agreeing with the truth of Christ or believing in the promises of Christ or living in obedience to the love of Christ to my neighbor enough or am I too deficient? Am I not a true disciple? Am I truly resting in the palm of Jesus' hand? Some of us will respond that way to something like this. And uh, I want to speak words of comfort to you. Consider two parables from Matthew 13. He put another parable. This is verse 31 of Matthew 13. He put another parable before them saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The smallest mustard seed of faith is enough. It is enough. That is the first lesson. The, the second is uh, from verse 33 of, of Matthew 13. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Um, I don't bake bread often, uh, but leaven is really small, right? It's tiny. And uh, you could have the biggest lump. You could have three measures of flour, which I guess is a lot. Um, And all you have to do is put a little leaven in it, and it will fill that whole dough. It will. Um, And so you may feel... Uh, that your faith is weak, that you're weak in faith, that you're weak in following Jesus, that you're weak in knowledge, that you're weak in love. But the work of the Holy Spirit, the one who gives life as he proceeds from the Father and the Son, he will leaven your whole lump. He will. The, The smallest seed will grow into a great tree. The Spirit will give you life. He will work it out in you. And so in in your part, right, keep agreeing with what you know about Jesus, what you see about Jesus, what you understand about Jesus. Keep believing in him. Keep seeking to know him. Keep loving your neighbor. Remain in Christ, and he will see you home. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And now, Jesus' response to Peter, Peter's confession reveals our third and final response to the words of life Jesus sows. We, our, our third point, third and final point is that the false disciple in the church's field. So verse 70 of, of John 6 Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The third response to the words of life that that Jesus sows in the world is is distinct from the hard-saying abandoners, and it's distinct from the true, agreeing, believing, knowing disciples And it is the response of of Judas, the devil in our midst. These are the ones who do not believe, who reject Jesus like the hard-staying abandoners, but they remain among us to seek their own advantage. Jude 11 through 13 describes them this way. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So three Old Testament references. Uh, Verse 12 continues, These are hidden reefs in our love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, 
swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These are visibly members of churches. They, they visibly are disciples of Jesus, yet within they have rejected Christ. Like Cain, they murder their brothers with hatred. Like Balaam, they, they seek either financial or social or political gain from spiritual things. Like Korah, they seek to overthrow God's appointed worship and establish themselves in God's place. Why does God allow this to happen? Why did God allow Judas as part of his twelve? Why is the visible assembly of God's people in the church mixed with true and false believers? Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to them, Then uh, do you want us to go and, and gather them up? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root out the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and then bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. This parable teaches us that God is aware of the mixture in our midst. And that he continues to allow it for the good and the preservation of the wheat. This is Good to be ha there is good to be had in allowing the wicked to remain until the end. But, but what good? Why does God allow it? I do not know. I don't understand. Just, I just know generally, right, that he allows it so that the wheat will be preserved. God knows specifically, though. My knowledge is insufficient, and God knows, and we should trust him. We should trust him. Remember what Romans 8.28 teaches. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The present evils that God's people endure will be turned to our good. They will. And our good is our salvation and, and Paul, kind of continuing his, his thought there in, in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is condemned. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things you are, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Though the wicked are in our midst, we have nothing to fear from them, because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even a Judas. And we're going to conclude this way. We're going we're to examine the hard saying that the that the uh, disciple, some disciples rejected, and we're going to examine the word of the kingdom. We had three responses within the visible church to the message of, of Christ. And we've used the parables of Matthew 13 to help illuminate these responses. And, and we're going to conclude uh, by drawing our attention to the substance of the hard saying of the spirit and life words from 60, uh, 663 and the, and the word of the kingdom from Matthew 13, 19, 13, 19 that Jesus speaks. So what, what, what is it that Jesus says it's, that people view as hard? What is it that G- Jesus says it's spirit and life? What is it that Jesus says that is the word of the kingdom that, that creates the kingdom in our hearts? There are 11... Uh, Statements, 11 promises, 11 truths uh, that we're going to just fly through. Jesus, uh, the first is that Jesus came down from heaven and gives life to the dead world. We see that in, in verse 33 of, of chapter 6. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is the life giver. Jesus will never cast us out in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes I will never cast out. You are secure in Jesus' hands. Jesus will lose nothing from, from verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has, uh, he has given to me, but will raise it up in the last day. The fifth is that Jesus will grant us eternal life. This is verse 40 and, and 54. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This eternal life is something that's future, but it's also something that's in us now through the Spirit of of Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Six is Jesus is mine. Because the Father has taught me and drawn me. We see this in in 44 through 45. No one can come to me. None of us can come to Jesus. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Isn't that beautiful? Right? That the God of all creation has drawn you to Jesus. And, And Jesus continues. I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes 
to me. Verse, the, the seventh thing is, Jesus' flesh is given. He was crucified for, for my life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Right? Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Uh, the eighth thing is that Jesus will resurrect our bodies. See that in 39, 40, and 54. Uh, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is coming again, and the dead, of, the dead in Christ will rise with him in glory. The dead will rise again. The ninth thing is that Jesus is united with us. He abides in me and, and I in him from, from uh, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Right? I am my beloved's and he is mine. Verse, or the, the tenth is Jesus is ascended to heaven. This is from verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And, and I think Jesus, in, 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 in saying this in, um, in John, he's definitely speaking about his ascension to heaven after his, his resurrection. But uh, like a lot of uh, Old Testament prophecies, he's also telescoping a bit. right? He's telescoping a bit where uh, his ascension on the cross is what we should look at too. And, and as we see him crucified, right, G Jesus says this, just as you, the Moses, right, lifted up the serpent, if you look upon the Son of Man, right, you will be saved. We, we look to Jesus crucified. He dies on a cross. He's buried in a tomb. He's resurrected, and then he ascends in the clouds. And so as we see the Son of, Son of Man, uh, see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, we, we see that the ascension is, is tied to this sacrificial giving of his life for our life. His blood for our blood. And we love him. We love the man that would do that for us. We see Christ and crucified and we know that he's ascended to his father's right hand. And we know that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we love him for it. We love him for it. We adore him for it. The, the 11th and final thing is that Jesus has sent his spirit to seal us and to give us life. We see that in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Is this the Jesus that you agree with? Is this the Jesus you believe in? Is this the Jesus you know? Come to him today. Come to Jesus and never stop coming to Jesus. Let's pray.